enjoy his presence and his word, and um, hopefully you're not too distracted with the windows open and, and the, the bird flying around. Um, don't worry, just uh, my, my, if you're a guest here, let me introduce myself first. My name is Paul Buckley, lead pastor here, and, um, and I'm pretty uh, laid back of a person, so if you're looking around, you're not going to uh, interrupt me. I guess if you stare at the bird the whole message, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have some concern. But, but um, so don't don't worry. But we're glad you're here, and more importantly, we are glad that we can be before God and His Word. Um, may God grant us every Sunday just amazement that we get to hear from the living God who made and sustains the universe from whom all things are created to whom all things belong ultimately. He has spoken to us and he speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Um, And so we are, as a church, built by the word and built around the word and propelled by the word. So we are spending time, um, we spend time each Sunday, but we are spending time recently in the book of Romans. We'll be finishing that up shortly uh, and then we'll launch into a short series on the topic of the church from the scriptures, and then the plan is after that to go into Genesis after the holiday season. So we are in Romans chapter 15, 14 through 33, and you can turn there in your Bibles. I strongly recommend you have a Bible in your hand. Um, Nothing wrong with having electronically, but I think there's just something that helps us interact by having it on something in our hands and follow along. Uh, And some of you I know have the journals uh, as well. It is not too late to get a journal and to use that to take your notes. We're going to look at the life of Paul. He's been called the greatest missionary ever. He's the subject of countless books on mission. He led a movement and established a method that sent cultural shockwaves that turned the world upside down and transformed the landscape of history. Much, perhaps even most, of what we take for granted in the world would never have been, humanly speaking, if not for this great man. In his short life, he preached to thousands, established churches, matured believers, raised up leaders, wrote scripture, and left us a mindset and methodology to carry the mission forward. This is the Apostle Paul. And in our passage today, we get an in-depth look at his missionary mindset and method. This passage is meant to grip us, shape us, and send us as we continue as partners in this grand mission. So let's pray and ask God to do this and more as we're before his word. So Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and your grace, your amazing grace in his life, a a murderer and persecutor of your church, transformed and used these ways. And if you've done that with Paul, You can do that with us however you want. So, Lord, teach us through your word. Uh, Fill us, mold us, send us, and glorify your name through us. As we dig into your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Read along with me, Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At the present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. God's word from Romans chapter 15, 14 to 33. And as I said, this passage gives us a powerful glimpse into Paul the missionary and accordingly should shape us in how we understand and practice our mission. We are called to follow Paul and learn from Paul the model missionary. There are three things, among many actually in this passage, uh, to highlight three key elements that I want to focus on that, that teach us about mission. Three things we learn from Paul. First, Paul built on gospel proclamation. Secondly, Paul pursued God's heart for the nations. And thirdly, Paul valued partnership. Um, if you like uh, alliteration, we got proclamation, pursuit, and partnership. So Paul first built on gospel Proclamation. He is concluding 15 chapters of gospel-centered teaching and application here. And if you follow Paul's life through the book of Acts, wherever he goes, he preaches Christ crucified and risen as the most important message. And so in this wonderful letter that we have preserved for us, that is more than just a letter, but the very words of God, we have depth. Uh, depth of teaching about this good news, about this gospel of Christ and the implications of his death and resurrection. 
Paul has taken time, we have seen actually multiple chapters, to frame this good news actually against the backdrop of the bad news. Throughout this letter, especially in the beginning, he's first had to tear down our confidence in ourselves, in our own righteousness, and instead has lifted up Christ as God's righteousness, our only hope. He's boldly presented a view of humanity that is actually very countercultural. A view that offends us and our humanity. We don't want to hear this bad news, do we? We don't want to hear about the fact that we're not righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear affirmation. We want to hear how good we are and how worthy we are. But that would not be loving for God to do that. It would not be loving for Paul to do that. You don't go to the doctor when you're sick to have him say everything's fine. You want to hear what the problem is. And so Paul and his care for the church and God's care for us through Paul first spells out the bad news that we are unrighteous, that we have not loved God as we were designed and called to love God with all of our being, all of the time, willingly, joyfully, fully, faithfully. We have not loved one another as we love ourselves with that same amount of energy and devotion and consideration and respect. That's the reality. The truth that we need to hear, though we don't want to hear it, and yet God brings it to us because He loves us. And He's the God of truth. And once we realize the reality of the bad news, now the good news starts to look all the better. The good news starts to take on the, the, the right proportions and sense of weight and goodness and glory that, that it should and so Paul has spent time with the bad news so that he can talk about the good news, this reality that Christ has come, died in our place for our sins, satisfied God's righteous requirements, that Christ has loved God in that way, and He has loved others in that way. And through simple faith in Christ, we are forgiven for our failures, our shortcomings, because the penalty is put on Him. He bears it on the cross, dies, sheds His blood, dies for us in our place. This amazing substitution of God in the flesh has taken place in Christ Jesus. And He didn't remain. He could not remain in the grave. He had to be vindicated. And so He was raised on the third day, alive forevermore, victorious over sin and death. That's the good news. He's ascended. He's reigning now. He's going to return. He is our righteousness. When we place our faith in Him, we are counted, considered, treated righteous even as if we had lived the life Christ had lived. That's the, the wonderful good news that Paul proclaims here in this letter. And he's bold in this. He challenges us with this. He challenges us that we might truly believe in, and live in the realities of that. That's what this letter is really about. The gospel, the wonder of the good news and its impact on us. Why, though, does Paul do this? Because this letter is being read at the time by a church that is probably predominantly believers. They've heard it already. They've responded to it already. They are already safe, forgiven, counted as sons and daughters. Paul says Wonderful things about them, actually, in, in this section, right? Did you catch the things he said? 
He said, I myself am satisfied about you. He knows them enough. He's not been there, but he knows about them. He knows people who know them personally. I myself am satisfied about you. He talked earlier in the letter about, about their reputation being known around the Roman world. So, so this is a, a church that is a good church. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Wow, that's a high compliment. They're full of goodness. This is the, the goodness of God, the character of God that comes into the people of God when they live around the gospel. There, there's a maturity. There's a, there's a character that's displayed through them. They're full of all goodness. They're full of goodness. And then he says, filled with all knowledge. They're, they're not only uh, demonstrating the, this good character, but of course the, the, the fuel and the root of good character is right understanding. They're full of all knowledge, of all essential and important knowledge. And then able to instruct one another. And that necessarily follows when, when we understand the truth and, and, and grasp it and it penetrates our lives and creates life and goodness in our lives and we're able to instruct others. This is how it works. Uh, it's interesting just to note that this is the formula for qualification for leading God's people, for elders, that their lives are to demonstrate the fruit of the knowledge of God. And they're to know and they're to demonstrate that in their life and therefore instruct. And if they don't have the knowledge and don't have the fruit, the goodness, confirm that they shouldn't be instructing and certainly pastors are called to do this in a special way but Paul actually is commending the whole church as a, as a whole church together churches should be full of goodness as the gospel knowledge the truth of the gospel penetrates our minds and our lives and creates the things that Paul's been talking about there's an ability then from that place to instruct one another through our example certainly but also through what we convey about the knowledge we understand each doing our part and so Paul commends them for these things. He reminds them even boldly about the gospel, though. So it's not for a, some sort of serious deficiency, though that is the motivation elsewhere in his letters. He writes to the Galatians, there's a serious deficiency there. The Corinthians as well, there's a serious deficiency there as well. But not with the Romans, and yet he still reminds them why. Is he just kind of fixated on the gospel? He's he just like the, the one-trick pony? This is all he can do is, is preach the gospel? Why does he do that? Now, he's actually going to explain it, and we'll get into that. But backdrop to him explaining it, the other, the other aspects of it, backdrop to, to every reality in every local church is that we need to be reminded of the gospel again and again and again. We need to be refreshed in the gospel again and again and again. The day we stop being reminded is the day we start forgetting. And the day you start forgetting is the day that you stop being what you're meant to be. Maturity in Christ is fueled and formed and shaped and, and propelled by the gospel, by the good news of Christ and its implications. And so Paul understands this, and so he wants to help mature this church even more. And this is his formula as a missionary, as he goes and plants churches, as he proclaims the gospel, not just that people who have never heard might hear and believe, but people who have heard it multiple times again and again might hear and be refreshed and reminded and reshaped and resent by the good news. We never stop needing to hear the good news. And we have so many 
needs for this. This is actually one of the most important reasons we gather every week as a church. One of the most important reasons is simply this, to be reminded of the good news. To be refreshed in its truth. You need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, more than anything else you need, by the way, you need to be reminded of the gospel. You and I are surrounded by partial and twisted truths that delude, uh, deluge us continually. The world, the flesh, and the devil drown out all other voices all too often and soon have us rethinking and redefining life, our identity, our values, our friends, and more. This is the reality that we all live in. We live in a fallen world with fallen natures and, a, and fallen angels that are counter to the gospel. And so we need to hear it again and again. We need to be rescued from the deluge by continually remembering. I love the scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, the story is that there's this evil witch who takes the heroes captive into a dark underworld and seeks to deceive them into thinking there's no reality besides that underworld. Every time they bring up something about the real world, she uses magic and lies to deceive them into thinking it's only their imaginations. Pretty soon the whole group is convinced she is right and they are wrong. There is no sun. There are no trees. There is no Aslan, the Christ figure in the book. But Puddleglum, despite being the cynical, depressed Marshwiggle he is, resists her dark lies and magic. He puts his foot in the magical fire to extinguish it and to snap himself out of the spell. And in that moment of realization, he starts talking about the real world, the trees and the grass and the sun and the moon, and starts talking about Aslan himself. And despite not yet being totally sure if he's right and these are real, he refuses to give in to the dark story, the dark version of reality that clings to his memory. As he does, as he recites the truth, the witch's uh, spell is broken. She's defeated, and they escape from her kingdom as it comes tumbling down. It's a picture, I imagine on purpose by C.S. Lewis, of this reality. That we are often in that place, in a dark underworld, and our, our life is darkening, the, 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 the lights have gone out, and we start believing an alternative reality about ourselves and about life. And it's the power of the gospel that comes in and opens up our eyes to see, I'm forgiven. He lives. My sin has been taken care of. He's victorious. I belong to Him. I'm loved. He's with me and never will forsake me. All these gospel promises come in to bring us back to the ultimate reality of the truth of Christ crucified and risen, of our Savior and Lord, and all these things that come with it. We need to hear the gospel so that we might wake up and live. There are so many glorious truths that come along with the gospel, truths that we ought to recite daily. I, I love how Tim Keller, you've heard this before, sums up the impact of the gospel for us. He says, we are more sinful, the gospel teaches us, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. So it sets us in the right place. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. What glorious and helpful truth that wakes us up and shapes us forms us and sends us. Paul understood this 
And so he built around the proclamation of the gospel to make, to bring people to Christ, to build them up, and to send them. He proclaimed the gospel as part of his mission. Secondly, Paul pursued God's heart for the nations. He continues, talks about why he's so bold with them. He, he says the grace of God uh, is active in his life. He reminds them for that reason. Uh, the grace, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to, to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Um, he's telling them why he preaches the gospel. It's the grace of God that's been in his life. It's active, and it's in the means by which, uh, using him to proclaim the gospel to to have an effect in people's lives. It's interesting to note some of the words that he uses there. I think, do we have this verse to, to show? Uh, the next slide, I think. Um, it has that verse that I just want to talk about. Notice some of the words that are there. It's really interesting, maybe different than what you've heard from Paul. He speaks of being a minister of Christ Jesus in the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know if you noticed, but the, there's a lot of words in there that are words that are used of temple worship idea of worshiping God's presence. Paul actually speaks of his service as priestly service. And what he's pointing to is, is the, the sort of service that was done in the temple. I think what Paul's doing here, uh, in line with what he does throughout Romans, is he's citing Isaiah. He's referencing, alluding to Isaiah, a passage from Isaiah. He's going to do that in verse 21, by the way, directly. Uh, and 18 times in the book of Romans that he quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah, remember, he didn't have the New Testament. He was writing part of the New Testament. So he had the Old Testament, the Word of God. And Isaiah, I think, had shaped Paul's understanding of his call and his mission. And there's a passage in Isaiah from chapter 66 that, that has some of the same words here. It says, There, for I know their works, this is God speaking, promised through Isaiah, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on uh, dromedaries. I had to look that up. That's a one-humped racing camel. So I also had to look up how to pronounce it. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So in Isaiah 66, it's a promise where, where there will be these people who go to the nations, the, to people who have not heard. And they will gather them in and they will bring them to the temple as an offering to the Lord. So it's the same sort of picture and words. And, and, and these are people acting as missionaries who are really acting in a priestly way to bring an offering of the Gentiles to the Lord. I believe, and theologians and Bible scholars believe, that Paul understood this passage in light of his call. That he was a key part of going to the nation bringing the good news, declaring the glory of God among the nations so that an offering might be brought to the Lord. Why is this important? Why is it in Isaiah? Why is Paul devoting his life to this? 
Simply put, God has a heart for all peoples. And desires all to come and worship Him. And He is actively and aggressively, God Himself is actively and aggressively seeking worshipers among all peoples, all ethnic groups throughout the globe. This is God's mission. And God does not do this because somehow He's needy of their worship. He's feeling lonely and unaffirmed and He needs people to come and help Him out. Not at all. God does not need us, but because He is good and loving and glorious, He wants us to enjoy the very best thing we could ever enjoy. And that is Him and all of His goodness and glory. And His ever-flowing grace and goodness he desires people to come and enjoy Him in His goodness and in His glory. He desires all peoples, people from every tribe and tongue, every ethnic group throughout the world to come and to worship and to be a part of His people and to find in Him the only place where we can find true satisfaction and true purpose. There is no greater cause than to bring this offering of our own lives and the lives of all those around us and being a part of bringing all nations to be an offering to the Lord, to glorify the Lord. Paul is delighting in this, and actually in this passage we learn he, he, has, he says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He's boasting in this work not because he is great, but because God is great and God is doing great things through him. And so he shares that. He's, he's unabashed and talking about how God is at work. God is at work fulfilling the promises of God. He says in verse 17, we could project this, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word, indeed, by the power of signs and wonders in his apostolic calling, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul is propelled by this mission to reach all peoples. It shapes what he does and why he does and when he does things. And he has been in his life called to this. And you can see the story in the book of Acts. He on, goes on various journeys with his team over the course of multiple journeys. Over the course of about 10 years, he's proclaimed Christ. He's demonstrated the reality of the kingdom and power. He's made disciples. He's planted churches. He's raised up leaders. Reaching from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, which is on the border of modern Italy. That whole swath of the Roman Empire. He has been active in that. And he says, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And now sought to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. It's interesting to just think about that. What does Paul mean? What's going on? What's he thinking? At that time, there were about 15 million people between Jerusalem and the border of Illyricum. 15 million people. That's a lot of people. Does Paul mean to say, I've shared the gospel with every single one of those people? I've fulfilled the, the gospel, the ministry of the gospel by sharing the gospel with all 15 million people? I don't think so. I don't think that would be possible uh, in that day, especially. It would take more than a lifetime. 
But what did Paul do between Jerusalem and Illyricum? He planted churches. He started churches. He proclaimed the gospel. God in His sovereignty had prepared hearts. They came to faith. They became a church. When they were ready, He raised up leaders among them. He raised up elders among them. He set them in place. He continued to minister with those churches through visits and letters and, and, and delegates being sent until those churches were mature. And then He moved on. And that's what he's saying here is, guys, I haven't been able to come to you because I've been busy doing this. I've been busy proclaiming the gospel, starting churches, maturing churches, raising leaders up. And at basically at this phase of his life, he was ready to move on because he had been successful in raising mature churches up in that region. This is how he thought. He says it elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, similar sort of things. He's dealing with the Corinthians who are immature at the time. And he says, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. He wants the Corinthians to grow up in the gospel and its implications so that they may be mature, that he can be propelled by them in partnership beyond them. This is how Paul did his mission. And he could say, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel because he had created these mature churches that now were viable churches in those regions. And now they had the mission of reaching the 15 million. Each one called to reach their area. Because when you're mature in the gospel, you look and act a lot like Jesus. And when you're mature in the gospel, you understand the gospel and you understand its implications and, and, and you love your neighbors and so you want to tell them about the gospel. And when you're mature in the gospel, you realize your need for grace and so you pray that God sends you in your own region and opens doors in your own region. And so Paul left it to these churches to carry on the mission in their own region and to partner with him to propel him and send him and send others beyond them to the underreached or unreached regions. I take time to spell that out because that's genius missiology. It's a wise biblical understanding of how we do mission, what our mission is, and how we partner with God in his global mission. Paul's strategy was to raise up mature churches. The church, the maturity of the church is integral to the mission of the church. They go hand in hand together. And a mature church is engaged in mission and propels people in mission. And we partner with the global church as it seeks to reach the whole world. And we live in an amazing day, brothers and sisters. An amazing day. There are 17, over 17,000 ethnic groups throughout the world. These would be a way to understand the, the every tribe and tongue. 17,000 distinct ethnic groups throughout the world. Only 7,400 or so remain unreached. There, have been massive pro there has been massive progress in the past 50 years. Many, maybe even most of these people groups have been reached even in the past 50 years. Let me tell you though, progress is slowing down right now. There's still a great need God is doing amazing things throughout the globe, but there's still a great need to reach these remaining groups. These are some of the 
most difficult groups. That's part of why it's slowed down. These are particularly difficult groups, and there's still a need for the mission to go forward, for us to partner as we can in the mission throughout the globe, to do all that we can, to pray and to send, to raise up mature believers who will go, perhaps to go yourself. In parallel, of course, we're called to this region. We're called to Greater Haverhill. We're called to New England. And amazing things have been going on in New England. It's been the least evangelized part of the country. Uh, so ironic, the area of the First Great Awakening is now the least reached area of the country. But things are changing. Things are growing fast. New England is now, I know at least Vermont is for sure, the fastest growing Christian population in the country. I joke that when you go from zero to one, it's infinite growth. So... Uh, but it is. It's, a, it's amazing things going on. And yet there's still so much to do. There's still so much to do. When I read the Bible and I read in, Gen in uh, Revelation about the countless multitude before the throne, and I do my engineering geek stuff by reading about the numbers that are there and taking my estimate, I think the numbers in the, is billions of billions are before the throne. And if there's anything close to that number, it means we've got a lot of work to do still. And for all we know, every single one of our family members and neighbors are called to be part of that countless number. And so, like Paul, we want to see an offering brought to the Lord. We want them worshiping with us forever in the presence of God in all His glory. So let's follow Paul as he follows God and his heart for the nations and our neighbors. I'm excited as we enter our next fiscal year uh, about a number of things that I hope we can do. One of those things is quarterly fasting and prayer. I'd like to go back to that. We used to do it at least yearly. Every quarter to take a week if you're able to fast and then to gather on one of the weeknights to pray together to seek the Lord, to ask God to use us to help fulfill what He's doing, to mature us and multiply us and reach our area and reach the globe. I pray that He will continue to work. I'm looking forward and I'm praying that God would grant us two baptismal services a year because we need to baptize people. We actually have some people to baptize, I trust. At least I know at least one in October. I think we'll have a baptismal service. But I'm praying and trusting God for that. I'm going to be praying that, that each of us can share some aspect of the good news of Christ every week. That God would open doors for you to share something about Jesus with someone every week. I want to pray that regularly this year. I'm going to pray that you would have an opportunity every month to invite someone to church or church events. I'm praying that for each of us, every year, you have the privilege of leading someone, either directly or indirectly, to Christ. I'm praying that we continue to propel the mission, and my question to you is, will you pray with me? As you look at the Word of God here in Romans and elsewhere, will you hear the call of God, the heart of God, and at least pray these things? Ask God to open doors for us to be part of this mission. Finally, and more quickly, Paul valued partnership with the whole church. We need each other. We need partnership. 
Paul understood this. He's engaging the Romans because of partnership. He wants to partner with them. Now that his assignment has been completed, he wants to go on to Spain, and he realizes, I'm not called to do this alone. I'm called to partnership with, with others, with this church. And so he's planning to go to them and be with them and to receive mutual encouragement with them. So his view of partnership is not, you know, I'm the hero, and you guys are always receiving from me. I'm going to go give you some stuff, and then I'm going to go on. No, we're going to have a mutual relationship, a partnership together, a friendship. We are called to partner with others, we are called to partner with the broader church. No church is meant to be independent. Certainly self-governing, but not independent. We are to be connected, interconnected to other churches and movements, part of the global work. We need partnership. That's why we are here. That's how we got here, by the way. We were planted by a group of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches. We were sustained and equipped and helped by Sovereign Grace Churches. A number of our pastors were trained theologically by Sovereign Grace Churches. We remained healthy and growing as we were connected with them, and we were able to plant other churches through Sovereign Grace Churches. This is why we continue our partnership now with Trinity Fellowship Churches and the Southern Baptist Convention, because we need partnership. It's why we're connected to workers throughout the globe and other movements, because we need partnership. They need us, we need them. And, and here in this letter, it's not just the, about the finances and, and, and providing some sort of methodology, perhaps. It's, it's about relationship. And just a, a, an area of application for us, I want us to grow in our relationship with our global partners. We have three that we sponsor directly as a church, among others that we sponsor to, sponsor to perhaps lesser degrees. But for the ones that we sponsor, um, I want us to grow in our relationship with them be more connected uh, as Peg and I visited and we trust that, that we can continue to visit and support we we learned that uh, that many of our global partners have the finances they need more or less they could use some more help but what they need the most is those that will connect with them relationally and do that over the long haul and so I hope that we can grow in this and one of the areas the things that I think we ought to do is to to strengthen and form our outreach and mission team and have that team, outreach and missions team, have that team uh, connect with our global partners through sustained prayer, letter writing, gift giving, Zoom calls, and visits as possible. I'm praying for this, and if you're interested, please let me know. I want us to do more in our partnership. Paul understood the importance of partnership. He needed the Roman church. The Roman church needed him. And yet, it's not just this one church. Paul understood partnership with the whole church. And so he tells the Romans that I can't come to you right now. I'm going to Jerusalem. I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm bringing aid for the saints there for other churches. Macedonia and Achaia have desired to bring a blessing to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was financially poor. And they recognize this connectivity to the broader body. They realize that these are our our fathers in the faith, this Jerusalem church. This is why we're here. This is why we've come to know the Lord. This is why we're growing because the church in Jerusalem thrived and sent people out, raised them up, and sent them to us, and here we are. So we understand this connection to them. Therefore, we want to help them. We want to give back, in a sense, as they've given to us spiritually. We're going to give back materially, financially. And so Paul was glad to be involved in that sort of 
connection, that sort of partnership. So he was going to Jerusalem to bring this gift to the Jerusalem church. This wonderful expression of partnership between Jew and Gentile. And this is important for us as well. And our connection with Trinity Fellowship Churches is this sort of partnership. And I, I just want to say thank you guys for your support as we serve with Trinity Fellowship Churches. Toby, Mike, and I serve in various capacities. I believe it pleases the Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a gift to this family of churches that they might grow and prosper and be a blessing to many. Paul values his partnership in these ways. And there's one more point real quick here. He finishes with the partnership of prayer. He asks them. He strongly pleads with them, actually. He, he uses strong language. I... I, I I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He needs their prayers because he's going to Jerusalem and it's not going to be easy. He knows there's going to be opposition there. He asks for deliverance from the unbelievers in Judea, the, the antagonistic unbelievers who would be there and, and, and seek to even take his life. He asks for blessing on this service to the, to the church that might be acceptable to the saints, that they would receive the blessing that was intended, and that God would bring him back to the Roman church. It's really interesting to realize the rest of the story. Paul's writing this stuff, and you get the sense, like, I'm expecting, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Please pray for this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. It, it was going to be around Passover, by the way. And it seems like, and I'll be seeing you guys in the summer. Looking forward to being with you. Once I do this thing, Jerusalem, please pray for me. Little did Paul know, little did the Roman church know, that it would be three plus years before he finally got back to them. And by the way, God did answer their prayers for Paul to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, but it was only after a couple assassination attempts, only after being thrown in prison and abandoned in prison by the officials, it was only after being on a boat and being shipwrecked on an island and then bitten by a snake. And it was only after finally being led in chains to outside Rome that God did bring Paul to them. How important were the prayers of the saints in the Roman church for Paul? I can imagine. Having read this, where's Paul? We've only heard now about him and they probably continued to intercede and by God's grace, he was brought to them finally. Brothers and sisters, your prayers are so important. Never underestimate the importance of prayer. In the mystery of God, he has determined to accomplish his sovereign will through the prayers of the saints. And we could say, even humanly speaking, perhaps if something doesn't happen in God's will, it's because we have not asked. And you maybe hear me make these audacious th things that I'm praying for and pursuing and wonder why. And it's because of this truth. I don't want to get to heaven and have God say, you didn't receive because you didn't ask. I know He's fully capable. We know He's fully able we know what He's like in the power of God. We see it in the Word. We see it in creation. So let's ask. Let's pray. Let's pray big. Yes, pray humbly. We can't guarantee it, but let's ask God accordingly 
to who He is. Let's ask Him to work because the mystery of prayer, He has determined to work through the prayers of His saints. And it very well may be He doesn't do certain things because we didn't ask in His sovereignty. Paul understands this and so we ask for prayer. That's part of partnership. Let me close there. I'd love to share more things on that, but I need for time to finish up. That's the power. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the boiler room of, of his ministry. It was the people of God assembled to pray. That he called his boiler room. Let's fire up our boiler room as we're called to be part of this mission. Let me conclude with a quick review. We're called to emulate Paul in many ways, to learn the three key things of our mission, to build on gospel proclamation, to pursue God's heart for the nations, to value partnership. Each of us are called in some way to participate with this. So let me just transition us by asking you to take a minute right now just to pray. What is one step to take to respond to God's word today? And then Pastor Toby will lead us in transition to communion.